This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post this podcast every Sunday. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is Lee Drutman, author of the book Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. He's interviewed by George Washington University professor Matthew Dalek. Lee Drutman, uh, it's terrific uh, to be with you. Uh, I know that we taught together at the University of California uh, Washington Center uh, uh, several years uh, ago, but um, it's really uh, nice to see you again. And um, your book, uh, the, the Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, weaves theory, history, political science, uh, and, and concrete reforms together in a really fascinating uh, way and, and in a way that, that really resonated uh, with me and I think is, is just was a really a pleasure to read. And, and I think it's um, you know, a great and important book and I, I hope it gets a lot of attention. Um, and I just wanted to start out by kind of pulling you back a little bit and asking you um, why did you want to write about political parties? Because I know your first book was focused on lobbying and in the universe of potential reforms, <laughs> uh, the Electoral College, one of the biggest ones, money in politics, which we hear a ton about, the growth of executive power, you chose to focus on parties as really a linchpin. Um, can you talk a little bit about what drew you to parties? Tell us about the process. Well, it's great to be with you again, Matt. It's a, a fun reunion here on, on uh, C-SPAN. And so why did I... Uh, write this book. Uh, I wrote this book because I was worried about American democracy, and I saw hyper-partisanship as a serious problem affecting our country and wanted to think about if there was some way to maybe solve that problem. Uh, And it kind of flowed in in a somewhat indirect way from my previous book, The Business of America's Lobbying, which was about the growth of corporate lobbying. And in that book, I had basically concluded that one reason why lobbyists were so powerful in Washington, D.C. was because they essentially wrote a lot of the, 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 the laws because there was not a tremendous amount of expertise and knowledge on Capitol Hill because congressional staffers turned over at such a high rate and Congress didn't really invest in itself. And after that book came out, I went around talking to folks in and around Congress saying, well, Congress should just hire more staff so they have some more expertise. And Everybody said, well, of course, yeah, that, that, that makes total sense. And yet it didn't happen. And one reason I think it didn't happen was because power had become so centralized in Congress. And at some point I also realized that even adding more staff wouldn't solve this, this problem of hyper-partisanship in Congress, this way in which nothing uh, gets done because there's so much gridlock except for the occasional moments when too much gets done. And I realized that the core problem of our democracy at this moment was the fact that we have two distinct national parties. Uh, and I think this is something that, that is new in American political history and is just at odds with the way our governing institutions work. And it, frankly, is driving us all a little crazy. Can you talk a little bit about why you think it's new? Um, you know, you, American political history obviously goes back more than uh, two centuries and, uh, and talk a little bit about um, how uh, the framers uh, envisioned 
uh, politics working, uh, the framers, uh, the, the role for factions and parties uh, that they saw, and, um, and, and why this is such a departure. Yeah, so let's start with the framers, because that's where a lot of these conversations about American political history start. Uh, and so the framers uh, were engaging in this kind of radical act of, of coming up with a system of self-governance, and they thought political parties were very dangerous things, because they had read their history of ancient Rome and ancient Greece and early republics, and they saw that civil war was a real threat to self-governance, and they saw that civil wars happened when uh, a polity got split in two, and that there were two parties, a majority party and a minority party often, and what would happen was the majority party would use its power to oppress the minority party. And so they thought that they were going to come up with a system of government that would make it very hard for parties to form. They were going to have bicameral legislature. They were going to have three branches of government Mm -hmm. on top of federalism. And that did make it very hard for parties to form, uh, uh, at least in, in a coherent way that we see parties today. In fact, that's one of the reasons why American parties have always been so weak and incoherent up until recent times was because uh, a lot of parties were state and local, uh, coalitions of state and local parties, uh, separate branches. So uh, parties were kind of a mess. But in in recent years, in the last several decades, American politics has really truly nationalized for the first time. And so for the first time, we have these truly nationalized parties that are that are genuinely distinct, represent genuine uh, Confl- genuinely different values, different visions of America, uh, and we have this zero-sum binary partisanship, which was the very thing that the that the framers feared. And I mean, just going back a little bit, the two-party system, though, even though obviously it's not always been Democratic and Republican parties, this this two-party system essentially has survived though for centuries. Um, why why has it endured? Um, and uh, and then we'll we'll get to the hyperpartisan yeah. uh, development and the kind of contemporary piece. But you know historically, it seems to have evolved, endured, and and these parties seem to have um, uh, been responsive to uh, national crises, to pressing national uh, concerns. And so I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about I, the historical. I, I think process. it. it- endured because the parties at a national level didn't really stand for all that much, and that essentially we had a multi-party system within mm. the two-party system, that the parties themselves were these broad overlapping coalitions so that they were more flexible, and you could, and at a, a governing level, in Congress you could build different coalitions based on different issues across parties, that often the local political identity was more important than the national political identity, and that also allowed for a lot of parochial log roll politics mm-hmm. that, that helped to, to grease the wheels of the legislative process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in, in an era, in an earlier era, in which local concerns were, were more important than national concerns, that it was just easier to build different governing coalitions at different times. And now, because the parties have become so distinct, so uh, separated, and they're both competing for this narrow but elusive majority, uh, the, the compromise, the coalition building that our system of government depends on uh, no longer works. 
Well, there's this really fascinating kind of warning within your book, and we'll get to the solutions, uh, obviously, later in the conversation about the nationalization of these political parties, this hyper-partisanship, as you put it. Um, one thing that struck me, and again, sticking with the kind of historical development piece, one thing that struck me is that um, were our politics, in reading your book, were our politics more in peril uh, during earlier eras in the past century, say during the Great Depression, or say in the 1960s, when, of course, we had uh, scores of urban riots, anti-war uh, protests, um, three leaders, three political leaders were assassinated, uh, and uh, police were clubbing demonstrators outside the Democratic Convention uh, in Chicago. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, looking back, uh, if, you, if you saw democracy really under greater threats uh, in, say, the 30s or uh, the 60s than it is uh, today, and how you would kind of place the parties uh, in those earlier eras versus now. Yeah, well, let's let's start with the '60s. Um, I mean, certainly the idea of of violence is is not something new to American democracy. I mean, throughout the the idea that there was some halcyon peaceful age of of American politics, I think is is a total myth. Mm-hmm. I mean, politics was has always been nasty yeah. and and, and you know, at times a little a little violent. Uh, but w- you know, what was what was different about the 1960s? Was that the the conflicts over civil rights were 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 not were not hyper partisan conflicts? Mm-hmm. Conflicts were fought between uh, more. Or sorry, the conflicts mm-hmm. were fought more within the parties than between the parties. Uh, so you know, in the civil rights bills, actually, uh, there was a higher percentage of Republican members of Congress voting for the the major civil rights bills in the 1960s. So the, the Democratic Party came to to own that. Mm-hmm. That set of policies. Uh, so what it meant is that though these were difficult conflicts, and certainly you know there were people who lost their lives in these conflicts, uh, they didn't threaten the fundamental stability of the American political system because they didn't create a, a condition in which everything was at stake with every election, which is which is the, the situation that we're in now, which is uh, creating these incredibly high stakes, incredibly emotional politics, and this, this, this bifurcation of the country into two entirely uh, distinct political coalitions, which is undermining the basic sense of, of, of legitimacy and fairness on which a system of democracy has to depend on. Uh, and that, that is a fundamental challenge. I mean, the 30s was also a uh, challenging time, and there were lots of folks who thought that democracy had come to its end and that fascism was was the wave of the future? Mm-hmm. And you know, perhaps if the election of 1932 had turned out differently, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you know, or 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 Huey Long had become president. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of historical Father contingencies. Coughlin, sure. yeah. uh, you know, so I mean, all, all of which should remind us that self-governance, democracy, is not something that we should take for granted, but is a, a somewhat fragile thing. And we have to think hard if we want to continue it. And and talk a little bit, this kind of mid-century, you know, you describe a, a four-party system. Yeah. Two parties within each party. Um, my question, though, is was there a bargain made on the issue of race and civil rights that the parties agreed for a number of decades to essentially push uh, the issue of Jim Crow and racial uh, 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 segregation aside in order to have these kind of uh, more harmonious yeah. uh, and, and bipartisan potential um, 
because once, of course, civil rights was introduced, uh, certainly, you know, for uh, a lot of white Americans in the South and in the North in particular, uh, uh, the stakes were extremely high. And that was, of course, true for African-Americans as well. Yeah, well, uh, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I mean, so there are a lot of folks who nostalgize that bipartisan consensus of the 50s and the early 60s. But, of course, that consensus was really based on the exclusion of civil rights from the national stage and the continuation of, of the Jim Crow South. And so this is why, you know, pol- politics is fundamentally about conflict. And we have to have mm-hmm. these conflicts. We just have to figure out how to have them in a way that is not so binary and zero mm-hmm. sum. Uh, and that that the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s set in motion the, the long realignment of America and politics along cultural uh, and social ident- and identity lines, which we now have are experiencing the culmination of. Uh, and you know, I would say that from probably the mid 60s through the through the late 80s, early 90s, we did have something like a, a functioning four party system mm-hmm. with liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats alongside liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And you know, although that system certainly wasn't perfect. Uh, you know, in retrospect, it worked pretty well because it meant that you could build different coalitions along different issues in Congress. And you know, lots of landmark legislation passed with overwhelming support. Uh, and you know, Congress, I think, w- was, was at its institutional height. There were strong committees. Congress was well-resourced. It hadn't ceded as much power to the executive branch as it has now. And, I mean, for for a lot of voters, of course, it meant that the parties didn't really stand for anything, which I think was a frustration for a lot of voters. But at a functional governing level, I think it worked pretty well. And ultimately, I I think we ought to get back to something like that, but with actually multiple parties Mm -hmm. so voters can actually make those choices more clearly. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned civil rights, of course. So beyond uh, civil rights... How would you how would you explain sort of the past uh, several decades? How would you kind of sum up, uh, and especially in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, where we see the break begin to see the breakdown of this four party uh, system? Are there broad cultural forces at work? Um, the rise of the culture wars, you know, things like Roe v. Wade, you know, the fractured media landscape, right? That we hear so many uh, pundits and scholars talk about. How would you how would you explain you know the forces that are driving these the rise of these national uh, parties and this yeah. binary binary polarization? Well, I think you I think you 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 identified a few of them. I mean, the the, the rising politics of the culture war, particularly accelerated by Roe v. Wade, backlash to civil rights, uh, and and just the increasing salience of culture war issues at the the national level. Probably the the end of the Cold War played a little bit into that as well as loss of a common enemy. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, there, I spend two chapters in the book kind of detailing these the, the, the trends, and even that doesn't do full justice sure. to the complexity. I'm talking yes. to a historian yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, in short, the, the, you know, as, as Americans became more, more prosperous and the middle class expanded, uh, the, the, the pressing economic issues of an earlier era uh, lost salience and the rising identity culture war politics gained salience and the parties took on more distinct and separate national images so by the 1990s when the culture when uh, culture war issues really re- reached a level of, of national salience 
Democratic Party had become much more clearly the party of cultural liberalism, and the Republican Party had much more clearly become the party of cultural conservatism. And these these patterns and and trends all all feed on themselves because as these national, big, abstract, cultural, national issues become more salient, uh, voters start identifying which party fits with their values better, and the parties themselves change as liberal Republicans disappeared from mm. the Republican Party and as conservative Democrats disappeared from the Democratic Party. The, the nat- national identities of the parties changed and voters moved and shifted, and that's what led to, to, to where we are today. You describe in this in the book, uh, a memo from Newt Gingrich, who, of course, was the House House Speaker, the uh, leader of the uh, so-called Republican Revolution in 1994. And the memo was to fellow Republican colleagues about how to describe Democrats. And I'm quoting from the memo from your book. He, he recommended that Republicans use words to talk about Democrats, such as betray, bizarre, decay, destroy, devour greed, lie, pathetic, radical, selfish, shame, sick, steal, and traitors. Um, that's a pretty remarkable set of attributes to, 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 to fix on one's opponents. Does that kind of encapsulate um, a, a different level of rancor yes. than, than what, even though as we discussed, you know, politics has always been bitter and brutal, uh, are we talking about something fundamentally uh, new in the in the early 90s? Well, Newt Gingrich did, did a bunch of things in that 1994 midterm election. He he encouraged his, his fellow Republicans to talk in a much more aggressive way about Democrats. He also, for the first time, really nationalized a congressional election that mm-hmm. in the past congressional elections had mostly been run on local issues. And Gingrich noticed something, which is that Republicans kept winning national elections for president, uh, Although they had they had lost in 1992, but that they were losing congressional elections, and he thought that the key was to emphasize these national themes, these cultural mm-hmm. themes that Reagan had had, and to and to some extent uh, Bush the first had had won on, and so he really changed changed the playbook for how you do congressional elections. Now I think Gingrich is a is a complicated figure. Uh, you know, I mean, he often becomes this caricature of, oh, so everything was fine, and then suddenly Gingrich sure. took over and things went to hell. He centralized power. But he was, he was picking up on trends that were happening before. And one reason why Gingrich came to power in the Republican Party was that there were a lot of Republicans in the House who were really tired of being in the minority and tired of the, the go-along, get-along leadership and uh, were craving somebody who was more oppositional. And the Democratic Party had been a majority in the House for 40 years, and they had grown a bit corrupt, and there was a increasingly strong centralized leadership under a Speaker Jim Wright, uh, which a lot, of re- a lot of Republicans rebelled against because they felt like they were being cut out of the process more, which led to the rise of, of, of Newt Gingrich. So, you know... I think I think he's an important player, but he's a he's a yeah. product of his time. And just to be ways. clear, your book is primarily about institutions. Yes. It's not about individuals. And you know, and Gingrich probably in your rendering is more of a, a symptom, right? More right. symptomatic than he is a cause. Right. Of, There's a reason that Gingrich yeah. emerged. The version yes. of Gingrich emerged at the time. Now, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to undervalue the role of particular actors at particular sure. times, but I think that we often overrate the role of particular actors in transforming institutions when they're largely responding to pressures and incentives and broad 
patterns. Well, and I'm going to get back to this, but one of the most refreshing things about your book is to read a, a work on contemporary politics that is not Trump-centric. It's not focused on Trump. I mean, he's mentioned a couple times, but um, it's really quite refreshing given the litany, right, of, of stories right. and the kind of uber focus on him. Um, getting back to the uh, 90s and kind of 2000s, trying to bring us up to, to where we are today, um, you write that Congress, quote, hasn't had a serious burst of bipartisan lawmaking since uh, lawmaking since 1990. Um, and when I read that, I part of me thought, OK, you know, I, I, I know Congress is dysfunctional. I, I used to work in, in Congress uh, uh, for former minority leader Richard uh, Gephardt and, and the partisan warfare. And then at the same time, I thought, well, you know, Clinton enacted NAFTA, welfare reform, the crime bill, a host of other bipartisan legislation. Not, you know, a lot of them we might disagree with, but right. there certainly was that in the 90s. After 9-11, both parties seem to come together around bipartisan national security reforms, again, whether good or bad. Um, and then the passage of TARP in response to the 2008 financial crisis. So my question is, are the, are the parties in the past two decades, have they been able to reach compromises and find some level of common ground, especially in cr- times of crisis? Or are these examples that I'm citing um, really so exceptional? Uh, uh, to this toxic, uh, uh, hyperpartisan norm. Well, I, I mean, I think there's been a steady decline. Right? It doesn't doesn't happen all at once. And you know, I, I talk about 1990. I mean, Congress passed major environmental mm-hmm. law, major immigration law, major uh, major budget reform, and Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, which are all really landmark le- legislation. Now, it's not to say that there hasn't been major bipartisan legislation since then, but the Having four major bills in a year, I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. And the, 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 it's been sputtering out in really the 2010s, in which I would argue that we, for the first time, have had that genuine two-party system has yeah. been just basically nothing in terms of major bipartisan legislation. I mean, the only legislation now in terms of major legislation that passes is partisan legislation. Mm-hmm. I mean, Congress can, you know, I mean, there, there's some stuff that, that passes in criminal justice reform uh, you know, uh, of of last of of uh, sure. 20, 2018 was a was was something, uh, but you know it, it's not uh, this, slim pickings. But 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 if we're talking about the the if we think about the denominator, uh, 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 which is the number of problems that Congress is called on to solve, and we look at the numerator, that fraction is getting smaller and smaller. Especially when it seems overwhelming majorities of the American people support certain right. steps like, yeah. let's say, common sense gum reform. Right. Um, so the, the title of the book has uh, this phrase, doom loop, two-party doom loop. Um, can you talk a little bit about why, why it's so dire, right? Why we can't seemingly escape this? Because as, as of course, we know politics is never static. Right. Um, but doom loop implies that there is a certain stasis and that uh, we've kind of spiraled into a really uh, negative uh, uh, period or era in which there really is no escape unless we have fundamental pro-democracy right. reforms. Right. Uh, well, so what we have in this, in this era is two distinct national parties fighting over a zero-sum conflict over what is our national identity. We have one party, the Democrats, that's has its core in an urban, cosmopolitan America, uh, diverse, multicultural, engaged in the global knowledge economy. 
and the other party, the Republicans, which has its core in rural, uh, traditional, white, Christian America, uh, increasingly disconnected from the global knowledge economy, and with two very different visions for governing America. And the challenge is that they're in, in roughly equal power, that in any given election, Democrats could win control of Washington, Republicans could win control of Washington. And we've had now, going back to 1992, this, this era, uh, this long-extended era of pendulum politics, we go from unified government for one party to divided government to unified government for the other party, back to divided government to unified government for the other party. And, and if Democrats, Democrats may gain unified control after the 2020 election, but they will probably only keep it for two years, even if they do. Uh, so there, there's no, the stakes are incredibly high. And we're in this era of extended trench warfare with no obvious resolution. And both sides desperately fear uh, being in the minority. And both sides think that they can win the majority. But it, it, is, a, it is a stalemate and neither side has any intention of ever backing down. And to even engage in political compromise is essentially to back down. So there, it's just just like you're stuck in a, a traffic jam and you can't move because there there are, there are fundamental barriers ahead. Yeah, it's kind of like your worst nightmare, right? You're getting stuck in this you know endless cycle where yeah, you just, and, you, and you're just you're just yeah, getting yeah. angrier and angrier. And all the forces yeah. forces in our political system lead to more escalation as the stakes have gotten higher. People get more emotional about politics. You, you can't compromise with the other side. People are cutting off friendships. Uh, people are more and more surrounding themselves with people who share their values and engaging in information, re- reading information and news that reinforces themselves. And you know, now we have two sides that have fundamentally different relations to what is even a true fact at this point. And, and you're also, are you saying that the elections, like, for example, the 2018 election, for all the partisans, anti-Trump partisans, that it wasn't a kind of escape uh, a, a valve of some sort that sort of let out some of the steam. The Democrats won the House, um, won a number of state legislatures. That this had a kind of tonic effect on some of the uh, uh, toxins, you know, that are spewing well, well, into the. Well, I mean, atmosphere. I mean, sure, it let out some of the steam, but you know, it, it it's not a it's not a long term solution. That that things you know that that majority is not a is not likely to be a permanent. Majority, and you know, once Trump is out of office, a lot of that anti-Trump energy will will dissipate, and then Democrats will be disappointed with whoever they elected president, uh, and will disengage. And 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 the, I mean, the the big, I mean, there's two big problems. Uh, you know, one is that there are a lot of really pressing national issues that we have to deal with. I would say climate is probably the most important mm-hmm. and most existential that we're not dealing with at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two is that this this escalating hyperpartisanship is we're now fighting over basic rules of elections of of who gets to vote of how votes are counted legitimacy uh, legitimacy yeah. and you know democracy i mean democracy is always going to involve conflict because politics is conflict the issues of consensus are not political issues but the challenge is we need to have some system by which we can agree that that some set of rules are fair and some set of procedures are fair and we can abide by those outcomes 
And when things like elections are fundamentally called into question, when le- when you know we don't have any way to 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 arbitrate disagreements, uh, we don't have a democracy anymore. Mm. You know, you you write in the book at one point that you're a Democrat, um, and but you say that the common argument that it's really one party, the Republican Party, that has become too extremist, it's gone off the rails. Um, it's become uh, uh, captured by, you know, essentially far right uh, forces, that that argument is uh, is flawed, right? That these are deeper kind of systemic uh, uh, problems. Again, you know, this idea of the doom loop. Could you talk a little bit about um, why you think the, the arguments that it's really, you know, that the Democrats are, are a big tent, right, with moderates and, and liberals and people on the far left, Whereas Republicans are um, are really quite extreme, um, why is that flawed? Well, Republicans are a big tent party too. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's flawed uh, on, a, on a few levels. I mean, I, well, first of all, I should say that I mean, I, I do agree that the Republican Party has become an incredibly extreme party, and by any historical or comparative standard, the the Republican Party has become an extreme party. But to to just say, well. The problem is the Republican Party, and therefore Democrats need to win all the elections. That that doesn't solve the underlying hyperpartisanship problem. It just makes it worse. So, you know, although you know, I may be a Democrat and I may think that I, things would be better if Democrats were in power, I don't think that's a solution to the underlying structural problems. And I think the reason that the Republican Party has become so extreme is really uh, fundamentally a function of the two-party system because there are a lot of folks in the Republican Party who were certainly not on board with what Trump stood for and where he wanted to take the party. But Trump said to them, well, you can't be a Democrat, so there's no other party, so you have to come along with me. And slowly they have come along with him. So if there were another party, uh, there were I think there are a lot of... Republicans who would have long left the Trump Republican Party and joined a different right party. I mean, if you think about Trump's support in the primary election, you know, probably got about you know forty percent, thirty, forty percent of say forty percent of people are are Republicans or Republican leaning, and he probably got about thirty percent of votes in the primary. That's like twelve percent of, yeah. of the country, which is in line with a lot of the far right parties in Europe. Uh, so. You know, that seems reasonable. But because we have a two-party system, you can be the plurality of a plurality and gain total power. So by winning the Republican nomination, Trump got to redefine the Republican Party. And for a lot of voters in the 2016 election, it was a binary choice. I mean, I've read a lot of columns uh, of folks on the right who say, well, I don't love Trump, but Democrats are a crazy town, so I guess I'll have to vote for Trump. Uh, and yeah. and in that binary system, I guess I'll have to vote yeah. for the Republican. There's no other alternative. Well, in the vast majority of folks on the right who were a lot of them opposed to Trump, like say at National Review, have come around, right, right. And, and a lot of them now support him with a handful of exceptions. Because he's the only game in town if you don't want to yeah. be a Democrat yeah. or you don't want to yeah. be an independent and, and have no power in, in our political yeah. system. So the other side is so evil, it's so abhorrent that we've got to stick with our team. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the logic lesser of yeah. two evils is the defining logic in our politics. But by the way, if you do a Google search for lesser of three evils, you, you won't find that much for it. It's, yeah. not, it's not a phrase that really yeah. exists. You'll, you'll find 
that, that there's a martial arts movie that was called <laughs> yeah. Lesser of yeah. Three Evils, but it, apparently it didn't do too well, and yeah. it was probably they changed a, the name, right? Terrible. Should, they yeah. changed the name to Fist of the Warrior. Yeah. So yeah. That, that, well, that was that was my <laughs> crack research on the, the yeah. phrase Lesser of Three Evils. Well, that might be an appropriate name for contemporary uh, partisan politics, Fist of the Warrior. <laughs> yes. um, let me ask you, I mean, in, in terms of getting at this doom loop, and we're going to get to your solutions uh, in a moment, but why isn't it conceivable that in 2020, let's say Trump loses, okay, um, that they, the Republicans dust off the 2012 autopsy report um, and the party shifts, okay? It, it becomes a more moderate uh, party, or at least it has a much bigger space for uh, more moderate uh, policies on issues like climate change, immigration, um, even, you know, at some point taxes. Um, why does that seem so far-fetched uh, uh, in your well, analysis. Well, look at how the Republican Party has shifted since 2012 when the Republicans lost and a bunch of uh, leaders in the party said, well, we, you know, we have to reach out to immigrants and we have to be more young people. Now, that was a faction within the party. That faction was defeated. And the Republican Party has now defined itself in opposition to immigration, uh, just a, the real fighter for traditional values. And those are the folks who are most active in the Republican Party now. So the idea that there's all these folks active and powerful in the Republican Party, they believe deeply in these values. If they lose in 2020, they probably think that they were cheated. They probably think that the reason they didn't win was because they didn't fight hard enough on their values because that, that's who is in charge of the party now. And those are the groups in the Republican coalition. The idea that they would embrace a, a uh, completely different vision of what the party stands for just seems to defy logic. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. you know, that, that's not the values of the Republican yeah. Party, and like, they're not going to suddenly transform their values when they think yeah. when they think that they can continue to win on those values. I mean, maybe if yeah. they maybe if they lose four presidential elections in a row. And they become a minority faction in, in a, in a dom- dominant democratic politics, then they might rethink. Yeah. But that, that's a ways off, and I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. One of the things I like about your book is that it's not uh, uh, at all relentlessly bleak, right? I mean, the, the first sort of half or, or two thirds um, is focused on the analysis, right? The problem. Um, but you've really got a very meaty, a solution section, right, and recommendations, and and you've clearly thought very deeply about them. And I'd like to spend a little time, kind of, uh, going through your case for uh, reform. And of course, that's the the subtitle: the case for multi-party democracy uh, in America. Um, you know, multi-party democracy seems very very foreign to us, right, um, to a lot of Americans. Um, but what would be the chief advantages to having a a multi-party uh, democracy? Well, I, I mean, one, I, I would, you know, I, I know it sounds foreign, but, but I think it actually shouldn't be seen as foreign for two reasons. One is that I think we had a multi-party mm-hmm. democracy in the U.S. for a long time, contained within the two-party system. But mm-hmm. I, think, I think what we had was much more akin to a multi-party democracy with different factions and different coalitions mm-hmm. than the two-party democracy that we have now. I think the two-party democracy of the 2010s is the truly yeah, radical deviation from the American political norm. I also think if you look at what the framers were writing about, and again, they didn't like parties, but what they really didn't like was the two-party system, that, you know, I read Madison's Federalist Number 10, 
uh, which is, is you know one about factions counteracting factions, which I, I read as saying, look, the, the, the key to a stable democracy is fluid coalitions, that you have different factions building different majorities on different issues, but you want to have a democracy so that no group feels like it's going to be in the permanent minority and therefore it doesn't see the system as legitimate and no group seems like it's going to be a permanent majority and therefore sees it as an opportunity to oppress the minority and that is fundamentally a vision of multi-party democracy in which uh, different parties build different coalitions at different times issues you know uh, come in uh, depending on the different issues and it's more responsive it's more fluid parties can come and go in response to, to changing demands and and concerns of the electorate and so I, I think it shouldn't seem that foreign to us. It's just that, you know, that, that we haven't conceived of our political history in that way. Um, I mean, I think it has tremendous advantages. Uh, you know, one, obviously, it breaks this binary uh, zero-sum politics and, and builds in a politics that's fundamentally about compromise and coalition building. Um, th- there are some other advantages as well. One is that uh, turnout is consistently higher in proportional mm-hmm. multi-party democracies uh, because every vote matters in a proportional multi-party democracy. Whereas in the U.S., if you're not in one of the handful of swing districts or swing states, like your vote doesn't matter. Moreover, with more parties, you're more likely to find a candidate or a party that, that you feel like speaks to you. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of them, uh, one of the things that's perplexed a lot of folks in the U.S. is why do we have such low voter turnout despite, I mean, we, we've, we've made it much easier to vote in the U.S. over the last 60 years, notwithstanding some backsliding in, in some states. Uh, and yet voter turnout has basically remained flat. I mean, it goes up a little bit, up and down a little bit, depending on the, the, the election. Uh, and the reason is, with only two parties, uh, a lot of voters feel like they don't have a party that they really feel excited about. With, with a lot of uncompetitive districts, voters feel like, you know, what's the point of voting? And most importantly, part, both of the political parties have written off large parts of the country and don't, don't even run operations. Mm. Whereas if every vote matters, you're more likely to vote and parties are more likely to go after mm. your vote. Also, gerrymandering is really only a, a function of our two-party system of single winner plurality districts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, a, it's a uniquely American problem. Mm-hmm. And if you have more parties and larger districts, which you would need to get more parties and proportional voting, gerrymandering goes away because you, you don't have a way to, to, to run these complex algorithms that predict how different lines are going to yield different uh, delegations. Can you talk about also some of the other reforms, too, that, that you envision? So uh, multi-member House districts, what are these and, and why would they... Uh, be better. So, in order to have proportional representation, which is, I, I say that there, there are the system that we have now of plurality elections, first past the post elections, is it, it, we're somewhat unique in the world. There's only a handful of countries that use it still. Most countries have moved over the course of the 20th century to proportional representation. There are many types of proportional representation. Um, there's there's the, the sort of hyper PR that Israel uses, which generates, I think, too many parties and a little bit too uh, too much uh, fracture. You know, what I what I envision for the the U.S. is something more like what I'd call modest multi-party democracy that would probably generate about four to six parties. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a system that Ireland uses, um, similar to a system that Australia uses, 
And rather than having a, a single-member district, which is what we're used to, you combine five districts into one, and then you have five representatives, and they're elected proportionally so that you don't have to get a plurality of the vote, but you actually wind up having to get about 17% per, of the vote if you use a, a system that the Irish use, which is uh, ranked choice voting within multi-member districts. So can you give us an example, say, of you know what would... Um I don't know, Nebraska or Oklahoma, or, you know, pick your... So, your I don't know, Oklahoma, I think, they have five, I think they have five congressional... Oklahoma's five, five seats? I don't know, let's okay. say it's five seats. Somebody from sure. Oklahoma might, sure. might correct me. Um, so, you know, Oklahoma is probably a 60% Republican state. I think, I think they, there was one Democrat who won from Oklahoma yeah. this year, just barely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but so Democrats or liberals should have... Um, you know, probably forty percent of the seats, Republicans sixty percent. That's a that's a fair distribution if you had one multi-member district. Um, of course, if you expand multi, if you have multi-member districts, you'd probably would have more than than two parties because now parties can compete without having to win a majority. So you might have you know a party that's more of like a social democratic party, like like you might think like Bernie Sanders. You might have a more moderate democratic party, think Joe Biden, and then you might have different Republican parties. I, I would say, and, and I argue in the book that I think you'd have probably the Republican Party would split into three. One that's mm-hmm. like a, a sort of moderate Republican reform-ish mm-hmm. party. One that's like a more traditional Christian conservative free markets mm-hmm. party. Mm-hmm. And then one that's like the, the Trump mm-hmm. America first, you know, welfare chauvinism mm-hmm. kind of party. So you really see five parties in a set. I mean, you see the country, the sort of biggest constituencies is kind of uh, representing five parties, essentially. Yeah. And you might have a small libertarian party. Yeah. You might have a, you know, yeah. as well. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are you know, it depends. I mean, you could see more parties, fewer parties, but you know, people's people will vote based on the parties on offer. Yeah. Uh, but there's nothing sacred about just having two parties. And and well, and you make a very good point in the book, which I really appreciate, which is that you know our electoral rules and our electoral system, most of it is not set in stone. No. Right. I mean, frankly, none of it is. No. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about um, because it was so refreshing? to read about the shifts in our electoral democracy. Can you talk a little bit about why, um, you know, we don't have to be bound up by two parties, right? It's, no. not, it's, not, it's not necessarily There's nothing in the Constitution. I mean, the only reason we have two parties is because, because we have a plurality voting system, which tends towards just two parties, and that the framers unthinkingly imported that from the, the British. It was a 1430 innovation. And it was at the time, it was the only system available. And it was a constituent based uh, candidate based system that seemed like, all right, well, that's just how we how we vote. I mean, there, there have been tremendous innovations in in electoral rules that have created systems that are fairer, more representative. Uh, and I think we could certainly benefit from from taking advantage of, of some of that innovation. Um, you know, and throughout our history, you know, we, we've changed our rules a bit. There was a period in the 1830s and the 1840s when a lot of states moved to, to single block voting, at large voting, uh, which actually is probably the only thing worse than plurality voting. Explain that. Uh, because it basically, if you have 60% of, of, of support in a state and it's all one, it's, it's, it's all at large, and you get, you know, say, say there's 10, 10, vote, 10 seats in a state, if you, you know, every, everybody gets 10 votes. And then, so if Democrats have 60% of the state, then 
they could win all 10 seats, whereas they should probably win about 60%. And this was something that a bunch of Democratic states started doing in the, in the 1830s. And then the Whigs got in power, and they, tried, they got rid of it. By, and that's why we have the single-winner single district mandate, which was strengthened in, in 1967, trying to enforce the one-person, uh, one, one vote to create equal-sized districts. Uh, but we, you know, the, the the Constitution says states can do what they want with their voting rules, and if Congress doesn't like what states are doing, Congress can tell states. It's the Elections Clause, Article One, Section Four. For those of you reading your Constitution mm-hmm. at home, yeah. So, uh, uh, and then talk a little bit about ranked voting, right? Because that's obviously unfamiliar to yeah, what, you know, me and, and most other people. Right. So ranked choice voting is a system that's been used in Australia for, for a little over 100 years, Ireland, uh, a few other countries. It's now actually been catching on in a handful of cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, came to San Francisco first, Minneapolis, mm. St. Paul use it, Oakland, New York City just adopted it for mm. its primaries. Maine is now using mm-hmm. it for its congressional and presidential elections. And the system is actually quite simple. Rather than picking just one candidate, you rank your candidates in order of preference. And... You know, then the candidates get eliminated from the bottom up, so the last place finisher of, of first preference choices uh, gets eliminated. Then the votes get transferred. So it's essentially like having a backup vote. You know, you might pick, it might be a candidate you really like, but you don't think that candidate's going to win. But you want to register your support, and then you know, second or third, you pick the candidate that you think can win. And you know, it gives more expression to voters. Voters really like having this ability. And, you know, it, it also encourages more coalition building that, you know, well, I might not be your first choice, but I'd like to be your second choice. And the cities that have adapted it have seen more, uh, less negative campaigning, and, and voters tend to tend to like that. So it's a, a way to reduce polarization, and with in the multi-winner format, it would lead lead to multi, multi-party yeah. democracy. I mean, it sounds really good, and, and let me just um, play devil's advocate for a of second, course. which is... Uh, so, you know, all political reforms, as you know, or most of them have unintended consequences, right? Things that we can't envision. Right. Sure. Um, now, some elect, uh, de- democratic reforms have, have clearly advanced democracy, I think. So, you know, something like suffrage or yeah. Voting uh, Rights Act in, in 1965. Um, others, though, I, th- I think seem quite flawed in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, so thinking about the California initiative. Top two primary. Uh, system, yeah. Or, or, yeah, or, the, yeah, or the, the initiative, initiative system. Yeah, the initiative system. So, uh, you know, we're designed to put power into people's hands, right? Take it out of the pa- hands of corporations, of legislators. But that led to things like Proposition 13, uh, Proposition 8. Is it 187, the anti-immigrant uh, uh, a proposition that so hurt the Republican Party in California? All very controversial. Um, campaign finance reform in the 1970s, again into the 2000s. The rhetoric around those things seemed to outpaced the reality of, of what happened and sort of that the, the, what they didn't deliver uh, uh, on the promise. It didn't seem to curb the influence of big money in politics. So talk to us a little bit about what do you think could go wrong with what you're calling in the book the Save uh, American Democracy Act? Like what would be some of the unintended uh, consequences that you might worry about were this to pass? Well, I mean, I want to say something about unintended Consequences that the status quo, maintaining the status quo also has yeah. unintended consequences. Higher, you're arguing higher risk for the status quo than change. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, look, I mean, I think it's, it's important to have a, a realistic view of democracy, which is that democracy is not something to solve, that, that democracy is always going to be messy and it's, it's always going to be a trade off among competing values. 
And for me, the role of reform is to try to solve the most pressing problems at a particular moment and also to, to, to think about uh, changes that, that we, we have experience with. So the idea of multi-party democracy, again, not, not a radical idea. Most advanced democracies in the world have multi-party democracy. Uh, most have stable coalition governments. This is, you know, this is not, not a, a crazy idea. Uh, I mean, there are certainly some crazy ideas out there. But you know, mm-hmm. even, even reforms that we look back on and say, well, maybe that wasn't the best idea, the California Initiative, maybe the, 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 the direct primary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the time, they were trying to solve a particular problem. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these progressive era reforms, if you went back to the progressive era and said, well, there's all this concentrated power. Both parties are totally bought by the wealthy industrialists. And you know, what do we do about that? Well, I guess we take power away from them because they don't seem to be representing the people that well. Now, there was an American Proportional Representation League that was in business from the 1890s through the 1930s that advocated uh, proportional representation. In fact, there were 24 cities that did move to uh, the the multi-winner form of ranked choice voting, including New York City. and yeah, I think it worked pretty well. But then some mm-hmm. communists got elected in one place, and some black people got elected yeah. in another place, and then and the, the two parties <laughs> kind of shut it down. Yeah. So, you know, but you know, I, I mean, look, like democracy is not a thing to be yeah. solved, and there are always unintended consequences. But the, we always have to weigh, yeah. you know, what what's worse: letting things continue yeah. as they are in a way that seems incredibly destructive and harmful, or solving what is the biggest problem now and then you know maybe you know a generation from now there'll be new problems that reformers will need to solve uh, and we'll deal with those then but we have to allow our democracy to continue in order to solve problems in the future well because you're a senior fellow at new america right uh New America, my sense is that they, they have an interest in seeing some of their ideas, and I'm not saying your ideas totally align with theirs, but some of their ideas uh, 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 come into action. Um, can you talk about the mechanics of implementing uh, these changes? Uh, how would these reforms actually get done? And then beyond the book, are there steps that you and or New America, um, and again, not to link the two things right. together, but... Um, might take uh, to to promote uh, your reform ideas? Well, I mean, we're already seeing reform taking off in the states. Maine has passed ranked choice voting. It will be on the ballot in Massachusetts. I think it will probably be on the ballot this, in 2020 in, uh, in Alaska. So there's a lot of energy already out in the country around electoral reform. Uh, and I think it will, as most political reforms in the history of the U.S. have happened, it will happen in the states, mm-hmm. uh, that, that states can change change how they elect their legislatures, and then eventually it will happen at the national level. Uh, there, I mean, there's even been a bill introduced in this Congress, the Fair Representation Act by uh, Congressman Don Beyer, uh, and that would put in place multi-member districts with ranked choice voting for the House. Uh, so, look, I, th- I think you know, big reform is never easy, uh, but you know, we are at a moment in which Americans are, are really frustrated with how the political system works, and uh, two-thirds of Americans say they'd like more than two parties. More Americans than ever are choosing not to affiliate with either the Democratic or the mm-hmm. Republican Party. Uh, inequality is incredibly high. And, you know, the, and we're also seeing the breakdown of, of a lot of things that we 
sort of thought of, thought of as just you know unchallenged with the neoliberal economics that that you know free trade uh-huh. free trade uh, you know the the Me Too movement the Black Lives Matter movement have I think really changed a lot of things and there's sort of a changing social hierarchy uh, and and, the, and and I think although Donald Trump's presidency has done a lot of damage it's also I think cleared away a lot of uh, a, a lot of assumptions that are, that our system works pretty well and I think it's woken up a lot of people to the idea that maybe there's some deep crisis in American democracy that we ought to reform and you know thinking about American political history I mean th- there is a, a pattern of of kind of Crisis and renewal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. Jacksonian democracy, the Progressive Era, Civil Rights Era. A lot each, of the amendments, right, to the Constitution reflect yeah, that. Yeah, and, and in each era, you know, we've had these moments in which it seems like something's broken, and then we make our democracy mm-hmm. more inclusive, more responsive, uh, and more functional. And we create new problems for another era, but we solve problems of, of that era. Even uh, even if the sorry to interrupt, but even the parties in power now, even if they see this as being harmful to their interests, like how do you, how does one get the, the the two parties now to basically sign off on and support legislation that uh, I guess abandon you know abolishes them in some ways and and breaks them up. I mean the two party the leadership of the two parties are gonna hate this book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, well, get attention though that way. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think one. I mean, we, we you know, reform happens when there's a mass movement of folks who who demand it. And you know, frankly, there are a lot of politicians who I think are really frustrated with being trapped in this system. They feel like they're just foot soldiers in this pointless war, and they really wanted to get into public service to solve big public problems. And in fact, they they'd like to engage in more cross partisan. Uh, problem solving, and they're prevented from doing so. They're prevented from from doing so by their party leadership and by their own voters, particularly their primary voters, who are whipped in, into a, a partisan frenzy. So I think there are, are a lot of folks in who would actually do a lot better under under a new system. And you know, it's you know, in the book I talk about some different cases of reform. New Zealand went from a first past the post. System to a to a proportional system in the '90s when voters demanded it and they felt that the political system was unresponsive. Uh, a lot of Western European democracies made the transition in the in the first two decades of the 20th century. And you know, in all these instances, you know, uh, political part political leaders eventually realized, oh, we can actually do quite well under this alternate system. And in fact, it would actually be better for the country. So you know, I I think it's very short-sighted of them to to persist in in this trench warfare i mean that's that's all they know that's their political animals but you know i think uh you know a lot of a lot of folks in public service got into public service because they wanted to do some good for the country and i think they're very frustrated right now uh we have just a few minutes left uh but i did want to pull back a little bit because as i was reading your book as with a lot of the literature that has popular literature at least it has emerged um so much of it seems to be in response to the 2016 election. And what I wondered is, when I read this book, is that do you think that anything would have been different, the way you wrote it, um, maybe some of the arguments you made had Hillary Clinton won? Um, would we be having the same conversation? Uh, or, or would it feel quite as urgent? Um, you know, you made a point earlier about Trump and, and sort of crystallizing 
uh, some of the, the flaws in the system that people are waking up to. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot about Earth Two, where Hillary Clinton <laughs> became president. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think we'd probably be now on the third or fourth impeachment of of Hillary Clinton, yeah. and we'd be looking at a, a scarier twenty twenty election. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I would have written a different book. In fact, I you know I had been <laughs> been planning a somewhat different book, although broadly some of the same themes prior to the 2016 election, and it kind of forced me to rethink and, and, and change the book that I wrote. Um, you know, I, I don't think people, we'd see as many people getting politically engaged as have gotten engaged in response to Trump. You know, I think it would just feel like more of, the, more of an extension of the Obama years. And, you know, so I think, you know, in some ways, I, I think, you know, weirdly, I think we may be better off as a country for having Trump come, come to power in a, in a way in which he was just completely disorganized and, and there was sort of a, a buffoonery and, and aspect to it rather rather than a, a more disciplined Trump-like figure. The last question, we got two minutes. Um, what do you make of uh, these books on, like On Tyranny, How Democracies Die, um, you know, the books that, that warn that, I mean, you, your book seems to fall into that genre, and, and how is your book in conversation with them, if at all? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I draw actually quite a bit on the, the How Democracies Die framework and, and do use that, their, their discussion of when mutual toleration and forbearance breaks down and, and say that, well, this is, this is actually what the path that we're on is, is, a, is a, a path towards death of democracy as we know it, because we, we're losing these breakdowns of these fundamental master norms. Uh, so it's very much in conversation with that. I mean, they're, they're, those books are not really solutions books. I mean, one of the things that, that I wanted to do in writing this book is to write a solutions book. I feel like there have been a lot of books in the last few years that have come out that are sort of hair on fire. You know, we've got a problem, we've got a problem. And then at the end, it's sort of like, well, people yeah. should be nicer to each other. Yeah. Or, Talk to your, you know, someone you disagree with politically. Yeah. And what I was really trying to do with this book is take, is take a step back and say, all right, well, like, how did we get to this moment? Like, what are, what are the deeper structural causes? And what in that can we change? You know, I mean, like, we're not going to change how the entire structure of the media works. Um, we're not going to change human psychology. We're not, you know, but we can change the incentives and we can change some institutional rules because we've done that throughout American political history and democracies around the world have done that. And, you know, that's fundamentally, you know, what the philosophy that guided our Constitution was the idea that, that institutions matter and well-designed institutions can channel our best instincts and, and minimize our worst instincts. And, and that's the, the inspiration that I take in, in proposing uh, democracy reform for the 2020s. Well, I think you really succeed in this book in capturing uh, the breakdown of these structures and looking at the kind of uh, structural problems that we have, as well as in uh, proposing uh, really smart and sensible solutions. So it's been wonderful uh, to, to be with you, Lee Drutman. Thanks so much for uh, being here. Well, it's a great pleasure to have this conversation, Matt. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. You might also like C-SPAN's Q&A podcast. This week, our guest is Peggy Wallace Kennedy, daughter of the former four-term Alabama governor and presidential candidate, segregationist George Wallace. You can subscribe to both Q&A and Afterwards wherever you get your podcasts.